everybody, and welcome to the Going Up Cast, your weekly feel-good podcast, where this week we talk about the legend, the Vox Machina. I went back and watched something on HBO. I talk about high school teen movies, and we talk about a little bit of video game news. That's right, off the bat, we are discussing Microsoft's purchase of Activision Blizzard, and what that could possibly mean for the video game industry. At the time of recording this, it was just announced that Sony bought Bungie, but I don't nearly, I don't care about that nearly as much as I do about the other one, so whoop de do for that one. Uh, but that doesn't surprise me at all, you know. Uh, when one fucking wheel spins, so two does the other. Uh, I talk about Mean Girls, Easy A, and not another teen movie, and a little bit of like a teen comedy block, because I rewatched, well, I rewatched uh, Easy A, um, and that made me want to talk about the other two as well. Uh, then I watched Ballers on HBO Max. Not all of it, but enough of it to know that I hate it. And we end this episode with talking about the first three episodes of The Legend of Vox Machina, now available on Amazon Prime. Please check it out. It's incredibly good. I hope you're all having a fantastic whatever is going on. Um, I know I have been on and off for the last couple of weeks, um, essentially because I've been so fucking busy and that I've not had time to really consume media, whether it's a video game or a movie or a show in order to talk about it. Um, And so in the rare instances in which I do, it basically culminates into like an episode every two weeks or so. Um, so that's kind of going to be the thing going forward until I don't know what will change. Um, but that's going to be the thing going forward for a little bit. Uh, in the meantime, we are wrapping up, uh, the last wish, which is the Witcher book. And then, uh, we will move on to the line, the witch in the wardrobe for the audiobooks. And I hope you're all having a fantastic fucking day. Let's get into this episode. I don't talk about news a lot because nine times out of ten, I'm so fucking far in the past with news that it's just like, why even bother? Um, case in point with this one, who knows when, when this will actually go up. Hopefully it's soon, um, so I can be somewhat topical, but we'll be feeling the impacts of this for for a long time. Microsoft done gone and bought Activision and Blizzard. From Tencent, um, the Chinese gaming company that everybody seems to ignore for some reason. Um, I can't seem to fathom why. Tencent's a pretty big deal. Um, and probably not for the best of reasons, but we'll not get into that. Um, I don't have many feelings about, well, I have, I have feelings about this, but, I mean, none of us can really say what the fuck this is gonna look like. Um, for one thing, uh, I hope it looks like better work practices and less sexual harassment nonsense. Um, I had a feeling that something like this was going to be necessary for the stigma to be repaired. Like if Blizzard quote unquote fixed themselves, so there was like a no longer a toxic work environment. I don't think that would have gone over well because that just would have been like a year later and then somebody at Blizzard being like, oh yeah, we took care of all that. No more sexual harassment here. And then we all would have been like, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah, I don't fucking trust you. Um, But now Microsoft has them. And so when Microsoft says, no more sexual harassment here, I'm more inclined to believe it because it seems like there's, I was about to be, 
an impartial third party. I don't think so. Um, but it, it, I don't know. Like my, my gut says that I would sooner trust Microsoft to like treat their employees well. I know firsthand that they don't, um, but not on the level of Blizzard's crap. Um, you know, Microsoft is an enormous company, all right? It's not all going to be sunshine and rainbows for everybody that works at Microsoft. That's just, you know, it's not possible. It's too big of a company for everybody to love it. Um, that being said, if a company was going to buy Activision and Blizzard, I'd probably want it to be Microsoft. Um, and, you know, like the world kind of, everybody kind of shot out of bed and was like, what does this mean? You know, because Microsoft just bought Call of Duty and World of Warcraft and all the upcoming Blizzard projects that looked like dog shit. Um, what does this mean? Well, it probably means... Uh, that Overwatch is probably not going to get, um, well, you know, I would be inclined to say that this means that all of these things are going to be exclusive to those consoles. I think we all know that's not going to be the case. Call of Duty is too much of a player to not also be out on PlayStation 5. Um, it's, that's, you're just leaving money on the table at that point. Um, is it worth putting Call of Duty as an exclusive franchise in order to move the Xbox? Probably not. Just like the PlayStation 5, the Xbox Series X, the whatever their most recent console is for Microsoft, is like one of the best-selling consoles Microsoft has ever made, even with all the fucking supply chain issues and the fact that they're not on shelves anywhere. That's why, because people keep buying them. This is a really good generation of consoles that nobody can get. It's, it's so fucking flabbergasting to me. Um, for, for big things like that, I will absolutely see, uh, expect it to continue being multi-platform. Microsoft is too big of a player to not do that. And I imagine that Sony would probably do the same. Even though Sony seems to be a little bit more cutthroat when it comes to exclusives. Like some of the PlayStation 4 games have like slowly been bleeding out onto like PC. Like God of War and Horizon Zero Dawn. Um, have been slowly coming out on PC. Things like Bloodborne are never going to come out on PC. Things like Spider-Man are never going to come out on PC. Um, but I, I, I think Microsoft is probably going to, to continue to support games for Sony consoles. Um, that'd be my expectation. I don't know. I also expect, um, outside of like cleaning up the toxicity of Blizzard... For Microsoft to more or less leave them alone. Like when Microsoft bought Bethesda. All they basically did as far as we're aware as consumers. Was put a bunch of Bethesda games up on the Xbox Game Pass. And that was pretty much it. Um, which I'm perfectly fine with. I wouldn't be surprised if say Microsoft did away with Battle.net. And all that shit was on Xbox Game Pass. I wouldn't be surprised if they made that move. I hope they come up with some sort of integration thing where it's like, I already owned these games on Battle.net. Just let me install them on Game Pass and so I can have all my shit in one stop shop because the Xbox Game Pass is, you know, a lot of people throw out like the Netflix of video gaming. It kind of sort of fucking is. The amount of games on there, like recent AAA, even in like the variety on Xbox Game Pass for the price you get of like $11 a month is... Pretty fucking good. I gotta admit. You play one $60 game a month. 
you're you're saving so much goddamn money. Um, that's all you you got to play one fucking game a month, and you've made your money back hand over fist. It's it's one of the best things about PC gaming as the Xbox Game Pass. Um, so what do I want out of this? What do I want as a consumer? Because I I've loved Blizzard games since I was a child. My number one game of all time is a Blizzard game. It's Diablo 2. Um, I enjoy other games better, but in terms of, like, legacy, I have to give it to Diablo 2 because it was, like, my first fucking game, really. Um, I want them to fix Blizzard so I can like these games again. Um, I want them to put competent writers on things. I want them to fix World of Warcraft. I want Overwatch 2 to get delayed into Infinity so it doesn't fucking suck when it comes out. I just, I want them to take what Blizzard has, which is intellectual properties out the ass, really fucking good ones too, and do something with them. I want StarCraft 3. I want Diablo 4 to come out and to be good. That's what I want. Will Microsoft fucking do this? I have no idea. But I think, as far as Blizzard is concerned, it's gonna stand a better chance in Microsoft's hands than it did in its fucking own. So, I'm hopeful for those sorts of things. I don't give two rats asses about, like, oh my god, in this fucking game, they've brought in these characters, like, the crossover potential into, like, other fucking games. Um, I saw somebody talking about, like, Diablo being a, a fucking fighter and killer instinct. Um, and I'm like, that's kind of cool. Don't get me wrong, and I'm sure, like, the fucking team over at Whoever makes Killer Instinct. Is it Rare? Does Rare make Killer Instinct? Am I high? I might be high. Um, whoever makes Killer Instinct is probably going to be fairly excited with the opportunity to work with such iconic characters. Or fucking Tracer. Like, you could you could put whoever you wanted in there. That's what, that's what Blizzard has in spades. Are interesting, awesome characters. Awesome storytelling. You know, one of the most popular MMOs of all time. So... I think, I think they're going to do some good stuff there. Um, we've already seen articles about, like, the the guy who, like, one of the biggest problem people over Blizzard is going to be ousted um, as in accordance to the terms of this deal. Um, so they're going to fill his ass in pretty quickly. Um, yeah, like, this is, this is a big deal. If you want uh, something to compare this to, this is only, like, Two billion dollars less than Disney buying 21st Century Fox, which was a 71 billion dollar deal. It's like 68 and a half billion dollars. This is enormous. Microsoft buying Bethesda was, I believe, less than 10 billion dollars, and everybody thought that was a huge fucking deal. We're like, oh my god, they have Fallout and fucking Skyrim and shit. Like, wow, that's that's a that's a big deal. And don't get me wrong. It fucking is. But Call of Duty is one of the most successful franchises of all time. And now Microsoft owns it. Um, it's, it is, it is surprising. Uh, especially considering that Microsoft had like one of its major competitors to Call of Duty is fucking Halo, you know? Um, and then you got Battlefield or whatever. I don't know who owns that. I'd, I'd be willing to bet it's probably Microsoft. Who owns Battlefield? Hold on. Uh, Battlefield, uh, is owned by <laughs> EA, which is, uh, who owns EA? <laughs> Hold on. Who owns EA? 
EA is owned by you're a subsidiary of somebody. Don't tell me you're not. Um, oh no, are you? Um, are you your own thing? Hold on. It might be its own thing. I think EA is all on its own. So EA has blocked Activision. So. It's interesting. It says right here. Second largest gaming company in the Americas and Europe by revenue and market capitalization after Activision and Blizzard. Well, now you're the largest. That isn't owned by Microsoft. Wow, that's, that's nuts. Activision Blizzard. What the fuck else does Activision Blizzard do? Um, because they had a lot of studios under their own. Oh, that's right. King. So on top of Activision and Blizzard, King, and nobody's talking about this because nobody gives a fuck about mobile gaming, but King made Candy Crush and all of those fucking games, which, love them or hate them, that's, that was one of the biggest mobile games ever. Candy Crush. It made so much fucking money. It made fucking mobile gaming a billion dollar industry. So, this is this is huge on like every fucking level. From esports to like fucking intellectual property to everything. And what does this mean for us, the consumer? Well, if you're not a PC gamer, probably isn't going to mean much. If you don't own an Xbox, probably not going to mean much. If you own a PlayStation 5, you're probably going to be okay. If you own a Switch, you couldn't give a fuck. It doesn't impact you. Um, generally, when things of this magnitude occur in entertainment, um, in entertainment, it's weird. It's, it's... So, when a handful of companies control the majority of an industry, regardless of whatever industry that is, you get into oligarchy, oligarchy areas. You know, when one company controls the majority, then you've got a monopoly. When it's like three to ten, then it's an oligarchy. Um, an example of this would be visual media or communications technologies. Let's let's look at that. Um, not ten years ago, there were six media companies. Now there are four. It's big, like. The, the ones that control the whole kit and caboodle. We're talking Comcast, NBC Universal slash Comcast, Disney, which now owns 20th Century Fox, right? That was previously owned by News Corp, but they sold it. Time Warner, which is like HBO and DC and all of that stuff. And then CBS and Viacom. That's it. That's all of them. That's the, that's the big four media companies. What do we have for video gaming? Microsoft? Sony? And Nintendo. For, like, consoles. And obviously we just learned EA and Take-Two and Ubisoft are other big game studios. There's a lot more players in the gaming industry than I think people realize. Especially with gaming being so accessible to indie development. That I'm not too worried about, like... The market being controlled by a handful of people. There are there are too many platforms to get indie games, and people are too creative, and there's too many crowdfunding options for it to just be dominated by Microsoft and Sony and Nintendo and all that shit and EA. Um, don't get me wrong, the number of AAA studios has just gone down by exactly minus one because Blizzard has 
And Activision, I guess minus two, but you know what I mean. Um, for the consumer, I don't think it will be a bad thing. I think for lifelong fans of Blizzard and for lifelong fans of Call of Duty, um, I would like to think that it means that it could mean something kind of more. Um, maybe. Um, I imagine that this deal has been in the works for... It probably took over a year for them to put all the pieces of this shit together. Um, you know, Microsoft knew what it was doing. Knows what it has. And I wouldn't be surprised if throughout the next couple of months we start getting some news pieces. Like, Microsoft being like, this game's cancelled, we're not making it anymore. This game is coming out this date. Like, I, I would, I would be surprised if if we didn't start getting some news like that because a lot of especially if we're just talking about blizzard a lot of those games overwatch 2 and diablo 4 have been put on the shelf while blizzard has been going through its entire restructuring um and we can only hope that such things are going to get put back on the fucking we're making it again thing um diablo 4 was originally announced in 2019. It's now 2022. Right around the time I would expect to see... Um, this game come out. Blizzard announced uh, earlier this year that it... Or earlier last year, rather. That it wasn't coming out this year because of high employee turnover. Gee, I wonder why. Fix this shit, Microsoft. You bought them. You got them. Now you gotta fix them. And then it might be okay for me to return to World of Warcraft, but only when this shit is no longer abysmal to support. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. So, I know everybody likes to think, well, not everybody, but lots of people like to think that, like, the pinnacle of, like, teen high school movies was the 80s, right? John Hughes. You had all those fucking classics, 16 Candles, Clueless, Pretty in Pink. And then later on in the 90s, it was like 10 Things I Hate About You. Although I don't think that was really teen. Was that a teen movie? I can't remember. It's been fucking years since we've seen it. Anyway, I wanted to talk about two movies that were like, well, I guess three movies, really. Uh, three movies that were like my high school movies. You know, like I feel like every generation has them. As you grow up, you get those fucking movies. I don't know what the fuck movies they are for high schoolers nowadays. <laughs> Couldn't tell you. They're probably Marvel movies. It's probably a Spider-Man. Like, that can't that can't be right. Like, Spider-Man's fantastic. Like, Homecoming is what I'm specifically referring to. Because Homecoming is a, a teen comedy that just so happens to have Spider-Man. Like, that's what makes that movie so great. Um, and the best MCU movies are excellent examples of the genre they persist in that just also happen to have superheroes like winter soldier is a spy thriller that just so happens to have superheroes and homecoming is a fucking teen comedy that just so happens to have spider-man in and with the three movies i want to talk about are mean girls not another teen movie and easy a let's talk about mean girls first this is easily in my opinion Lindsay lohan's finest film it was right at her peak, um, and she made some terrible movies after that, and then those drugs and whatnot, and just makes me sad. Um, but Mean Girls, like, written by Tina Fey, is 
excellent. It's it's all about identity and uh, like fitting in with the crowd and being somebody you're not. And that's high school in a fucking nutshell, isn't it? Like, oh my god, everybody in high school, like you're figuring yourself out in high school. You have no idea what the fuck is going on, and that's a pretty consistent theme. In most of these fucking teen movies, including EZA. Um, but I feel like Mean Girls does it really well. Um, it represents its lessons that it's trying to teach in a in a good way. And what's great about both Mean Girls and EZA is that the adult characters are written competently. In fact, the entire reason I wanted to talk about these movies at all is because of the parents in EZA. Because they might be the best on-screen parents I've ever seen in a movie. Like, they are so fucking good. And it makes that movie so much more fun. But I'll talk about that in a second. Um, Mean Girls, it's just... It's it's incredibly funny. It holds up more than you think it probably should. I mean, don't get me wrong. The tech is a little dated because, you know, the movie came out. Well, more than a decade ago. Um, at the very least. I don't remember when it actually came out. I want to say it was like 2005. That's my guess. Let me Google it. Let me Google it real quick. Because I like being right about things. Mean Girls. 2004. Son of a bitch. Alright, well. Whatever. Um, yeah, the casting in that movie was, was excellent as well. It holds up. Um, and yeah, I think, I think it's timeless. The beauty of high school... Uh, movies is that they transcend generations that go through high school. Granted, all of these represent American high school. Um, so I don't want to say that they're representative of, you know, the world. So they're not universal so much as in terms of the universe, but I would say they're universally relatable to like the American high school image. But I think there are concepts in these movies that are universal. That whole um, figuring yourself out at this pivotal point in your life. Uh, trying to make friends. You know, first crushes. First time you go on a date. First time you have sex. All those things. Um, and it's perfectly, you know. And, like, you do not have to have had those experiences in high school in order to relate with them in the movie. Um, but those tend, tend to be some of the, some of the topics, including easy a, which is that idea of trying to fit into school and sex at the same time, because the whole thing of all of story is that she never has sex in the movie until I think the very end. Um, but everybody thinks that she does all the time. And that comes back to bite her one time when this dude essentially tries to whore her out. For like a Home Depot gift card or something like that. I can't remember. Um, but if, if I had to pick one that was like my personal favorite teen movie from when I was a kid. I would have to give it to Easy A. Mean Girls had so many great lines that are quotable, right? Um, like you can quote Mean Girls till the cows come home. Although when Mean Girls came out, I was 10. So I wouldn't really classify that as a high school movie for me. Easy A. It was 2010. So I would have been... Yeah, I was in high school. I was in high school then. I started going to high school in 2008. Does that math work out? 
No, that doesn't work out. Hold on a second. When did I... I graduated in 2016 from college, which means I was I went to college in 2012, which means I graduated high school in 2012. So yeah, 2010 I was a sophomore. Fuck, I can't do math. I do math for a living now. Um, I don't remember seeing it in theaters. I remember seeing it later, like on Netflix. Was Netflix a thing in 2010? I don't remember. I saw it later. I don't think I saw it in theaters. Um, but I loved it. It, you know, it's Emma Stone's debut as a, as a lead in a movie was this movie. Um, and the, the theme it tells and how it relates back to the Scarlet Letter, which is an abysmal book and Nathaniel Hawthorne is a terrible author and I won't hear a word against that. Um, cause fuck that book and fuck him. Um, it does a, it does a pretty good job of telling that terrible Scarlet Letter story in like a modern adaptation. Um... But it goes beyond that, right? It it talks about uh, the struggles of sexuality in school. Not only with Olive and her seeming slightiness, um, but with Brandon, the, the kid who is a closeted homosexual and is dealing with the fucking stressors of that and goes to such extremes to get people off his fucking ass for being horrible monsters to him. Um... And then the movie does the classic, like, true love was there the whole time. And it kind of is. It's it's awesome how, how the all of Todd story is told throughout the movie. Like, Todd just kind of keeps showing up. And it's like a constant theme throughout the whole movie. And, like, Olive never really gives him, like, the time of day. But it's like, that's who, you know, she ends up with at the end of the movie. And it's, it's, it's so, like, sprinkled throughout. It's just, it's awesome. I love that. I love that so much. Um... But the whole reason I wanted to talk about these movies is because of those fucking parents. Stanley Tucci and let me look her up because she also does a a phenomenal job. Uh, da, 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 da. Patricia Clarkson and Stanley Tucci are the best parents in any movie. And the reason I love that is, well, A, they're written phenomenally. Like, everything that comes out of either of their mouths is fucking hilarious. It's some of those like the this movie's writing is so fucking snappy and it's so good and it was written by one fucking guy, Burt V Royal. What else did you write? Cuz this this movie fucking kicked ass. Is this the only thing you wrote? No. Yeah, this is the the most recent thing this person wrote was 2010 Easy A. Um, oh, Brandon, the gay character in Easy A is based on himself. Good job, fucking Burt V. Royal. Please write more things, because, Christ, this was, this movie's hilarious. That's the last thing you did? Goddamn. Well, the writing of this movie is phenomenal. And what I love about those parents being competent and supportive and loving and funny is that Olive has this firm foundation that we, the viewers, can fall back on. Too often in teen movies, everything sucks, right? Like school is terrible and their partner is an asshole and their work sucks and their their family is terrible and they don't care. Too often it's that. And it's just struggle on top of struggle on top of struggle. But with Olive, it's literally just school and like her interpersonal relationships. Her family, super supportive and behind her like 100% the entire movie. And I love that. But 
everything that Olive deals with and the the focus of the movie is kind of prod on herself, you know? Um, and when that movie gets a little, you know, it hits some rough patches, not in terms of, like, quality, but in terms of, like, the story gets real. Um, pretty much when that guy tries to treat her like a prostitute at the end of the movie. I think that's, like, the climax of how bad it can get, and that's essentially, like, the the natural conclusion of this horrible lie that Olive has woven for herself. Um, we've got that, that firm foundation of, like, safety to fall back on. Like, whenever we're in the house, it's like, nothing bad will happen here because her parents are so awesome. And that's one of the primary reasons I think this movie works so goddamn well um, is because of the parents in Easy A. Great fucking movie. I give that movie like a 9 out of 10, maybe a 10 out of 10 on a good day. It's a fucking excellent movie. Um, and the last movie I want to talk about in this vein is not another teen movie. And not another teen movie is not only a good movie, which it is, but it's also the best spoof movie that I've ever seen. Because any good spoof or satire or whatever you want to call it is at its core, a good representation of the work that it's satirizing. Like Tenacious D. Tenacious D writes comedy music. Music designed to make you laugh. But when the music fades away, or when the comedy fades away, rather, and it's no longer funny, there's still legitimately good songs for the most part. For the most part. Post-Apocalypto, or whatever the fuck it was called, was pretty terrible. But Rise of the Phoenix is like one of my favorite albums of all time. Um, that album, oh my god, I've, I've probably listened to that album more than, more than most. Um, and so that's why I refer to things that, like, that do this sort of satirizing, and then when the funny goes away, it's still a legitimately good movie at, or thing at its core. I call that the Tenacious D effect. So, not another teen movie is the best example of that. It's a spoof movie. It's mocking pretty much all the John Hughes movies that came out ever. That's that's the whole point. It's it's to poke fun at those movies. But it's still a good teen movie in its own way. It's a little stupid. It's a little schlocky. Yeah, of course. It's a spoof movie. But it still does a pretty goddamn good job of selling that those same messages of identity, of interpersonal relationships, sex, all that stuff. It still does that in spades um these three movies would make a hell of a fucking like movie marathon they're all incredible in their own way um and you gotta love the fact that in not another teen movie that was chris evans first movie before he was fucking the human torch before he was captain america he was fucking jake wilder um or jake wyler i think it's wyler right um Am I forgetting? Not another teen. Not another D&D. Teen movie. 2001. This is the oldest of the teen movies. When this movie came out, I was seven. Excellent job. I don't think I saw it when I was seven. I want to clarify that. But I think I was pretty young when I saw this the first time. But I fucking love this movie. Yeah, Jake Weiler. Um, but yeah, that was Chris Evans. And so you get fucking great lines said by Captain America being like, that cute little face she makes when she's tonguing my balls. Or, 
oh, it's not a Sunday. It's a banana split. He has, just has a banana up his ass. Oh my god, it's, it's fucking great. If you haven't seen that movie, I highly recommend you see that movie. It's, it's the best fucking, like, out of, if I was gonna watch, like, a 1980s teen movie, I would put this one on before any of the other ones. It's, it's just, oh, it's so good. Um, plus it's got Molly Ringwald in it, and everybody knows that in order for a teen movie to be good, it's got Molly Ringwald in it. Neither Mean Girls or Easy A have Molly Ringwald in it. And that's because they're so good. They're the exception to that rule. The Molly Ringwald uh, rule. She doesn't have to be in everything. But chances are if she's in your movie. Movie's probably going to be pretty good. Just you know. If it's an 80's teen movie. I don't know what she's been doing lately. To be perfectly honest with you. Um, you know let's find out while I'm talking about this. Where, where are you Molly Ringwald? You're in there Molly Ringwald. Um, what have you been up to lately? Uh, looks like you did an audiobook reading. Um, you, you're doing some literary translation work. Well, that's fun. Apparently you were in the new Gem and the Holograms movie. Do you guys remember they made a Gem and the Holograms movie? 2015. Seven years ago, they came out with a new Gem and the Holograms movie. It starred Aubrey Peoples. Who the fuck is Aubrey Peoples? Have you done anything lately? No. No, not really. You were, you were, you were Jim. Anyway, that's all. That's all. I want to talk about those movies because I watched EZA the other day and it was fucking awesome. And it made me think of all the other ones that were fucking awesome. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Let's go on to the next thing of podcast. I gotta talk about something. I got out of bed. It's midnight thirty. Because I needed to talk about this. So for the last like two fucking days, I've been watching a show on HBO Max that I watched years ago. Like when when my dad lived in Vegas, um, I was getting uh, like a fucking business certificate. And so I was staying with him for a couple of weeks. And uh, we watched the show called Ballers. Which if you haven't seen it, it's, uh, it's The Rock, uh, Rob Corddry... Um, it's, it's about, it's basically about, (laughs) it's about a bunch of assholes and that's the story. It's, I can't even say what it's really about because the show itself doesn't know what it's about. This show's inability to tell a consistent story thread is astoundingly terrible it flip-flops characters change motivations on a whim within scenes of each other in the same show and it happens every episode it doesn't you can't connect with any of these characters on the show because they're not real people. In season one, The Rock is all about protecting football players from financial errors, making sure they spend their money wisely. Right? That's what he's all about. 
And then season two, he's all about fucking over this other guy who screwed him in the past. And that just kind of fizzles out and doesn't really go anywhere. And then season three, he's all about moving the Raiders to Vegas, which actually happened. But every time his dream is presented to him, he rejects it because he wasn't the one who orchestrated it. And he throws all of that other shit out the window, caring about the players or his workers and all. He just fucking throws all that shit out the window until the last 30 seconds of the season. And he goes, never mind. We're still doing this shit. Fucking let's just go. Because the writers don't care about plausible motivations or uh, closure on a story thread or anything like that. It'll The show invents problems and then just dumps them constantly without any sort of resolution second season i've seen i've in the last two fucking days i watched three seasons of this show granted it's only 10 episodes a season and each episode's basically just 20 fucking minutes because the first three minutes of each episode is previously on plus this insanely wrong theme song and then the show ends like 10 minutes sooner than you think it should because it gives you the fucking behind the scenes bullshit and next time on nonsense the episodes are really fucking small um it's it's the worst show I can't stop watching. That's that's the weird thing is that it's weirdly addicting and it's terrible. It's bad entertainment and it's bad for you because there's no there's no lessons to be learned here, nothing of significance. There are no characters that you can write home about and be like, oh man, Spencer Sizemore, whatever the fuck his name is, is just such a compelling character. He's really not. Let's let's look at The Rock's fucking character in the show. Now, for, let me clarify. I absolutely adore The Rock. The Rock is a wonderful person. And I can't say enough nice things about The Rock. He is a constant inspiration to fucking millions around the world. He does so much good for for himself for his family for for the people of the world <laughs> he's he's a fucking he's a he's a champion everybody should strive to be more like the rock spencer strasmore is a fucking asshole <laughs> and he, let's just let's just talk about him so i mean i he flip-flopped so fucking often in this fucking show he spends his money frivolously. He's a financial manager. He's he's incredibly aggressive, but I think the thing that disappoints me mo- the most is his his romantic crap is such donkey boffing nonsense, and it's almost not even the character's fault because the writers just do such a bad job with everything, including romantic subplots. Like, in the first two seasons, right, he has his his reporter lady friend, whose name I cannot remember to save the life of me. Um, but they just write her ass out of the show and send her ass to Bristol to work for ESPN. Um, and she does not show up in season three. I don't know if she returns in season four or fucking season five, which is the last season, thankfully. Um, but they just write her ass out of the show. And then season three, we get this other chick. 
who kind of shows up out of nowhere, seems to hate his fucking guts. And I think they have like one conversation and then they're in like a committed relationship out of nowhere. They also mentioned that like she has kids, but we never see the kids. Um, we never get any sort of idea about the level of their relationship. And then he eventually tries to get her ass pregnant without her say so, which I'm pretty confident is sexual assault. Like, no, I'm like a hundred percent confident that's sexual assault. If you're having sex with somebody and you just fucking go for it, right? Without protection and you don't. Like, and they're not okay with that. That is absolutely not okay. And he does that straight up in this show. Because he's terrified that he won't have a fucking legacy in one of the most selfish acts I've ever seen a character do on a show. And it's almost played off as a joke. But that shit ain't funny. That shit ain't funny at all. Everyone in this show is an asshole. And they're irredeemable. Except for... Let's see. Who isn't an asshole? God, no. They all have their fucking moments, don't they? It's a miserable show. It, like... It's it's all about, like, these... High-earning individuals. Football players. And the people who manage their money, who are also high-earning individuals... That's what the show was supposed to be about. And I'm like, that's fairly intriguing. Um, because that's something new that I hadn't seen in a show before. You know, just here's a bunch of people who are incredibly rich. Um, they're almost like lottery winners where they get tons of money and then they piss it all away and then it's gone. And that's an endemic problem. I mean, there's a ton of football players out there who, once they leave the league, like, what do you do? Because here's the scenario, right? You're in, like, your 30s, maybe your 40s, if your name is Andrew Whitworth or Tom Brady. What do you do after football? You retire at that point. Like, your season's done. You've played the game. Sure, you can potentially move into commentary like fucking Romo or the Manning brothers you could move into coaching you could go to ESPN like fucking um oh god damn it what's his name um uh fucking Michael Michael Strahan you could you could turn into Michael Strahan or you kinda just fade into obscurity like, there's a bunch of players who just just vanish. And I thought a show that dealt with that sort of reality, a very real problem, um, and dealt with it would have been would have been interesting. And I appreciate the show trying to ground itself by making it seem like the rock was the reason the Raiders moved to Vegas, which he fucking wasn't. Um is it was an interesting idea, but I don't think it worked out um, because the show doesn't know how to write shit. And honestly, that last scene in season three, when he's in the office saying that they're not selling the company be- 
because it's so fucking stupid. It's so fucking stupid. There are so many moments in this show when it was like, if you just swallowed your fucking pride and weren't an asshole for 30 seconds, none of these problems would have happened. None of them. But you didn't. And they happened. And you're an idiot. I Like, that's at the end of every fucking episode. And my favorite is that these characters are surprised when people call them an asshole. Like, at some point, The Rock looks at his, his like, office door, right? And somebody wrote D-bag on it. And he's like, who did that? I'm like, fucking take your pick. Everybody in this fucking show thinks you're an asshole because they themselves are assholes. It's not a happy show. But I can't stop watching it. I've pissed away so many hours over the last couple of days watching this fucking show. And I don't know why. Season 1 is is fairly... Compared to the fucking shit that follows after Season 1. Season 1's like a goddamn masterpiece. In terms of its fairly small and tight story. It has clear villains. It has clear motivations. It has motivations that you can get behind. The Rock is not an asshole in that season. But he also goes through incidents that just kind of don't go anywhere. And there's always something medically wrong with this character. Like, he had the the potential brain damage from playing football, and then it turns out he doesn't. And then his, and then he gets in a fight, and he fucked up his hip, and he needed a hip replacement, and then he gets the hip replacement. And then season three, it's all about, I, I you know, I've never thought about having kids, but now that I could potentially, like, might not be able to have kids, you know, I should get, you know, a fertility test and, and take a look. And then it turns out that his sperm is essentially dying, and that's when he rapes that chick. I mean, it started off consensually, but he, you know, he ejaculated within without consent, and that's the problem. It's, it is not, I mean, I'm sure if I went back and looked at, like, some fucking news articles about the show at the time, there would have been some goddamn controversy about that, because that shit ain't okay anyway, you slice it. So, honestly, like, the only reason I'm talking about the show is because it's been such a a weird part of my my life the last couple of days. And if I've learned anything from this show, it's the following two things. Number one, don't buy things that have depreciating value. If it flies, drives, floats, lease it. That was episode one. I'm like, that's good advice, you know? You don't want to like buy shit outright because that that could be a, a potential loss on investment, right? Um, like if you had a million dollars to spend on a house, maybe don't spend all of your one million dollars on a house. Maybe you lease that shit and then you sell it and you move on. You know, like you don't want to don't want to be tied down with assets like that. That makes sense to me. Sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't, but being smart with your money, being flexible, that makes sense to me. That was a legitimate financial thing that the show taught me, and I was like, hey, you know what? There's some wisdom in that. I'm not going to apply it to all things. You know, no single rule when it comes to money is viable, but that is some good wisdom. The second thing I learned about from watching the show is that you should not watch the show. That's probably the most important piece of wisdom. That one you can apply universally. I cannot recommend this show. I'm going to finish this show. But that's my bad decision. 
That's my cross to bear. My my job in this instance is to act as the intermediary between you, you wonderful listeners, and bad entertainment. For this one segment, most of the time I like to talk about things that I actually do enjoy. Uh, that is not the case with the show. And I cannot in good conscience recommend it to anybody. Um, not even if you're a fan of The Rock, because The Rock does not comport himself in a rock-like fashion in this show. The Rock is a complete t- fucking piece of shit. I was going to say dipshit, but it's late and I stumbled over my words. Um, he is a complete monster in the show, and I cannot recommend it. If if you want your, your mental image of The Rock to remain untarnished, do not put the show on on HBO Max. It is not fucking worth it, and it will just bum you out and make you frustrated because of all the wrong decisions that are made by this fucking show. Uh, and you know what's really funny? Is that the end of season one, you could fucking stop watching the show at the end of that season and you would probably be okay because the end of season one is actually a pretty solid cutoff point for the story that it told. It's almost anthological in terms of like each season being its own little micro thing. Um, But it's not good at, at all. So it doesn't matter that that's what it's doing. It's still bad. But it's interesting that they did that that way. So yeah. Can't recommend it. Don't do not do that. I'm going to put on an episode and give it a try. I, I had somebody the other day be like, yeah, whenever I watch a new show, I always do four episodes of that show. And that's so fucking counter to my to my mentality of watching things. Because I'm a lot more fucking strict when it comes to, like, trying a new show. If that show doesn't fucking intrigue me, episode one, I don't want to watch it. Because that is the show's chance to do that. I don't I don't have time to be like, oh yeah, five episodes and then it gets good? Alright, well, that's an immediate, I just, I'm never going to watch it. I'm never going to watch it if you if you come at me with that fucking pitch. Because instead of me watching something for like an hour at most, all of a sudden I'm mentally dedicating five hours of my life to watch something that won't be good for 80% of that time. You can go fuck yourself. That's just not happening. And as I've mentioned, this show isn't good. But I watched three seasons in two days. Because it is... Trash TV. It's just like reading Twilight. You can't fucking put it down. And it's terrible. But you can't help but watch it. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Finally this week, after years, years of waiting... For this show to come out, The Legend of Vox Machina, episodes 1, 2, and 3 have premiered on Amazon Prime for my, yours, and everyone else's watching pleasures. It is so fucking weird and so freaking cool to see this show actually happen. I mean, I've been watching Critical Role. Fuck me. Junior year of college would have been 2015. Seven years. 
Been watching, been watching Critical Role. And the Kickstarter has been going on for, you know, the Kickstarter was three years ago. Um, so, pretty long time ago. Anyway, I'm not here to talk about how the show got made, even though that story is incredible. But I'm here to specifically talk about the first three episodes. Now, I did watch the first two episodes early because being a Kickstarter backer allowed me to see it like 48 hours before everybody else whoopty fucking do. Um, but I just finished watching the third episode, which was not released ahead of time, and so that was new to me as well. But let's talk about it. Now, the first two episodes are two-parter, called The Terror of Taldore, which tells a story that did not occur on the actual stream itself, but was a pre-stream event, essentially, of Vox Machina dealing with a blue dragon known as Brimscythe, who over the... I'm gonna spoil the shit, just so you know. Who, over the course of that episode, uh, is revealed to be General Krieg, who is beautifully played by David Tennant. And I knew that ahead of time, because they talk about that in the actual live stream of season one. Um, but what's great about this show is that you do not need previous knowledge of the streams in order to watch the show. Does it help? Sure. Fucking, of course it does. Just like how reading the book before you see the movie the, that is, you know the adaptation of the book would probably help you understand the movie, but it is not necessary. And I cannot make that clear enough. You do not have to have seen all 1000 plus hours of season one of critical role in order to appreciate this. Plus I probably wouldn't recommend you do that mostly because the quality in terms of visuals of season one makes it pretty hard to go back to. Also the audio is not the best. So it's, it's a tough thing to return to outside of like greatest hits and like best of compilations. Like I could not sit there and watch all of season one again. It would, I don't think I'd have a great time doing that. Um, but the animated show is essentially what's going to be like my recap of season one. Plus the animated show has the uh, benefit of one of my all time favorite things, which is season one knows how the story ends before it began. The live stream of season one ended long before the show was being put into production. So they had, here's the beginning, the middle, and the end. This is what the characters do. This is the story they go on. These are the adventures. This is what happens. There you go. That's it. They're they're adapt, you know, adapting that. And so there are a lot of fun Easter eggs and environmental pieces that hint to later episodes in this fucking show. Now, apropos of nothing in based on what this first couple of episodes give us, I'd be willing to bet that the season one closer is going to be the arrival of the Chroma Conclave and the destruction of Amon. That's my prediction. Um, based on how the show starts with a member of the Chroma Conclave, Brimscythe, I think that makes a very natural ending, including the fact that there is the carpet of the Chroma Conclave in um, Krieg's like secret treasure house. So, that's my prediction. Um... But the beauty of this uh, show, for me at least, is the Briarwood arc, which was the first arc that I ever watched back in 2015. Um, and it occurs about 20 or so, it's like 28 episodes into season one. Uh, basically, the return of Vox Machina Whitestone and Percy telling them about the Briarwoods. Um, but let's talk, let's talk about it episode by episode because I'm, I'm getting kind of lost in the weeds here. Um, let me pull it up, uh, so we can look at each one individually. All right. Legend. Vox Machina. Why is it not on the fucking 
It's not on my fucking banner anymore. That's so that's so fucking fucking weird. Where it's not even like popping up any. All right, fine. The really you're gonna you're gonna fucking do me like this. The Legend of Vox Machina. There it is. Jesus Christ, that took too long. Season one. Yes, Terror Taldori Part One. It starts off with uh, a tavern brawl, uh, which I enjoyed quite a bit. And you get a pretty decent idea of who these characters are uh, kind of right out the gate. Now, I've always said that I consider it a little bit cheaty for the first episode to be in two parts. Because, you know, then you get like two episodes and, you know, oh, you have to watch the second part. Um, And if I were to consider this as an objective pilot, I would say it's pretty all right. Um, and I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm not going to let my bias to this show blind me from the fact that I thought the first, first episode was pretty okay. Little by the numbers, some of the jokes didn't quite land for me. Um, and there were a couple of animation things that kind of had me raising an eyebrow, um, in terms of just like technical stuff. Like there's a scene where Uriel sits down and it's missing like, 10 frames of animation. He's just standing and like he jitters and then he's in a chair. Um, so that's a little weird for me. The background art in the show is pretty fucking good. Um, it's, it's really excellent. The lip syncing to the words being said is not the greatest. I'm going to be honest. Um, I absolutely adore the character designs. Um, it's very Young Justice, which makes sense because the same person who did the character designs in Young Justice and most of the modern DC TV stuff is the person who did the character design in this show. Very angular eyebrows, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I love that. I love that stuff. Voice acting goes without saying at being incredible, as is the music. Um, and much like how the jokes don't quite land for me, some of the Scanlan songs, we haven't heard many of them. Um, at this point in terms of the show, but so far not one has really done it for me. Um, I absolutely adored Scanlan singing in the live streaming. Um, and I love that they're original songs. Um, but there's, there is a certain air of them kind of getting away with things simply because they can. Like, it is an adult animated show. And it pulls no punches, and it reminds you of that constantly. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think, and as far as like things in like episode three, um, and even some of the violence in episode two, being an adult animated show is what this show needed to be. But it's also the the vulgarness in terms of some of the sex jokes. I find to be a little much in some places here's my thing the music and the jokes see the violence while not essential is part of the plot if that makes sense like it advances the story there's a scene in season in episode three i'm going to talk about here in a little bit um that services the story you know scanlon singing about anal beads doesn't really service the story he could have sung about anything but they chose for him to sing about anal beads. So, you know, I get that he's a crass individual, but perhaps that's 
It's a step too far. Perhaps I'm a prude. Whatever. Um, I do want to point this out because I'll forget otherwise. The color pattern of Scanlan's uh, codpiece in the third episode is the polysexual flag. Which is excellent. And while we're on that topic, goes without saying, Legend of Ox Machina has a lot of representation in terms of sexuality and in terms of just general representation. Um, this is one of the things that the creators of the show wanted to get right because obviously in the original show, it's everybody on the fucking cast is white. So they wanted to have a more diverse cast and they have achieved that. Um, also, Vax is bisexual. Canlan it's uh, Scanlan. Canlan. Scanlan will, he, I think in his own words, uh, basically any consenting adult is fair game as far as Scanlan is concerned. And there's, uh, you got to respect that. Um, and then, of course, within Vox Machina, Vox Machina had pretty much everybody uh, paired off with somebody. Um, Vex ends up with Percy. Scanlan eventually ends up with Pike. Keyleth and Vax end up together. Grog is the only one that doesn't get, like, a love interest, and that's just because that's not... That was, you know, that was the thing that Travis had. Travis did not want to roleplay romance in D&D, and it wasn't until Campaign 2 that he fucking finally did, but when he did, it, it, it was with his own wife, so it was kind of less, uh, less of a big thing. But, yeah, Grog didn't get a romantic partner in season 1. Um, that might change in the show. Who knows? Um, so, yeah, as a pilot, it's fine. It, it tells the story of Brimsythe and the, 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 I don't know. Not even the first adventure of Vox Machina. It isn't. Um, the comic books show you the first adventures of Vox Machina. But this is after that. And there's a great moment where I thought, like, in the beginning, Keyleth is like, why are we even together? And I thought it was going to flash back and show how they got together and balance that off with this new story of Brimsythe. That isn't, that's not what happens. So that question kind of goes unanswered and instead they go on this dragon killing quest, um, which makes it a more straightforward story. Um, and I don't hate it. I love how they eventually bring him down, seeing that fight, um, you know, animated was something really cool. And there were a lot of great moments. I feel like the show, uh, along with it, knowing how the story ends, it also knows who these characters are before they began writing it. And it shows because, to me, folks like Keyleth and uh, Percy uh, and Pike, especially, were not particularly well fleshed out in the original stream. Um, you know, Pike's case because Ashley was busy filming Blindspot, and so she was just like never around. But with Percy and Keyleth, there was always I don't know. There was there's just something lacking there. But now they have become like my favorite characters because they are much more established in terms of what they represent for the story, um, and who they are to themselves. Like, Keyleth is so fucking on point to what I wanted Keyleth to be that she's, like, my number one character in the show. She has a lot of great emotionality to her. She's basically, like, the heart of the group um, in terms of that emotional center because everybody else is either really cynical or kind of naive or an asshole. Um, but Keyleth is just, like, this, this innocent, like, hi, you know, I'm just here to help out. and Oh, fuck, everybody's dead. Um, so, first two episodes... As a single unit pilot, I thought was very successful. But that third episode really kicked it up a notch. Um, like, for me, I'm hooked episode one. I thought I thought it was plenty good that if I wasn't a fan ahead of time, that this definitely would have been like, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch this one for sure. 
gonna watch this show. Um, but episode three would be the one that I think would have sold me on it, knowing nothing. Episode three is so fucking good that if I wasn't already a fan, I'd be going back and watching this shit originally myself because hot diggity shit. And because now episode three is doing what I want the show to do and it's taking it in a dark direction and it's going fucking hard. So if you don't know, uh, the main villain for season ones are the Briarwoods, uh, Silas and Delilah Briarwood, uh, or the Lord and Lady of Whitestone having killed the entire royal family um, which is the Drollo family, and Percy is the last surviving scion that we know of at this moment in time for the Drollos. And they're all invited to a party, um, essentially, and the Briarwoods are there, and Percy's, like, losing his fucking shit, and, uh, eventually it leads to, like, a big old brawl, but there are just some animation references in there. Like, there's a zoom-in on Percy's face, which... I can't remember what it's referencing. I'm sorry. Um, but it's I, it's an anime thing. Um, Legend of Korra did it too. But I can't tell you what it's fucking from. Um, but it's a great fucking shot. And I love it. I love that that's like... They used that shot. Um, the fight with the Briarwoods was great. Seeing Craven Edge was amazing. But it really does come down to Percy's rage. And summoning um, fucking... Was it Orthanc? No, that's the tower in... Um, Lord of the Rings. What's, uh, Percy's Shadow Demon? What the fuck was it called? Orthax. I was pretty close. Summoning Orthax for the first time in the show and just seeing that black smoke and him putting on the fucking raven mask and blowing that kid's fucking hand off with his gun. Like, that was... That was the scene. That was the moment. Like, I fucking loved that. And that's why, like... I love all of these characters... And I have for years. But this is Percy's story. The Briarwoods and what they mean for his backstory means that season one is all about Percy. Like, it, it, it can't be anything else because of what they mean to him and his backstory. So I'm fucking thrilled that it is um, right, like right at the forefront and they are not holding back at all. Um, so no, I, I am absolutely enamored with this show and, um, hold on, continue. It is also heartening to see that the reception of this show has been very positive. Um, it's got 96% of Google users like it, 9 out of 10 on IMDb, 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is pretty fucking good. Um, 94% user score. Like, it's being very highly rated. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's fucking, it's fucking great. And I am absolutely loving it. But I didn't expect really anything less. And because of my love for this, I think I'm being even more critical of this product than I would be for, like, any other show. Um, it's, it's... It goes without saying that I am watching this show like a fucking hawk. And I will be here to comment, to nitpick, to peel apart, to put back together every fucking episode of this show. And I'm very excited about it. Um, and that being said, um, that's pretty much everything that I wanted to talk about in this week's episode of the Going Upcast. I got a couple other things that I'm going to talk about. 
Um, but I'll save them for, for the next episode. Um, because, you know, I like to keep a couple of things close to the chest. And I hope you're all having a fantastic whatever's going on. Um, and I will talk to you all next time. Have a good one, everyone.